All right, the Psalms. You guys ready? Psalm 64. If you, if you haven't been with us in the past several years, uh, we have started a journey uh, seven years ago where we began walking through the Psalms in consecutive order. Now, that's, that's pretty unique. That a lot of churches don't do that. When we get to Psalm 119, it's going to be a challenge, okay? Uh, but we're in Psalm 64 today. And uh, we're going to be looking at this text. And the Psalms, there's a few of them that, that are linked together, and, and we see that they are uh, kind of in sequential order. But in many ways, these are just a collection of songs of, of you know, David and, and several other writers. And, and so we, we see these. These are very poetic in nature. They're, they're prayers of, of fellow saints. They're, they're prayers of fellow Christians. And uh, they speak to us and they teach us. And, and they're really a gift. And I'm thankful for this rhythm that we started. And I don't necessarily know that it would be a, a rhythm uh, that, that initially that I would have felt like I, I really wanted to dive in. But it's been really helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful. I hope it's a gift for you this morning, even as we open Psalm 64 and, and, uh, and we glean and mine gold out of this text, because there, there's a lot here that I think brings comfort, uh, but there's also a lot here that I think should bring some warnings to us, and, uh, and I think we can learn a lot from this. I've seen four significant gifts from the Psalms as we've kind of journeyed over the years. Uh, the first one is, I, I really think the Psalms teach us to pray uh, and how to communicate with God. Uh, there's a lot of raw emotion in the Psalms, and there's a lot of things that you would, you would read, and you're like, is it really okay to pray that, right? Can you imagine being at community group, and all of a sudden someone, hey, let's huddle up and pray, and the person next to you says, as Psalm 3 says, arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked, and you're like, I think I'll scoot my chair over a little bit, right? Like this, this would cause some alarm. But I, I love this about the Psalms. The Psalms bring such raw emotion. They teach us how to pray, how to cry out to God. Uh, Athanasius, who was a Christian theologian in 296 AD, said, The other scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. They give language, right? Second thing is, they teach us to feel. Feelers, all right? Some of us aren't feelers. We don't like to feel. We want to avoid. We want to stuff emotion, right? But they, they teach us how to be authentic with our emotions. It, it teaches us that it's okay to struggle. It's okay to feel. It's okay to be real about where you're at. You don't have to bottle it all up. You don't have to put on a happy face and pretend, God has created you as an emotional being. Now, we'll learn from scriptures that we can't always trust our emotions, and that's why the, the, the Bible says, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things, and our emotions can kind of rule us, and, and I think we're going to see in the Psalms that sometimes emotions rule the writers of this. I, I look at, at David, and I think back of David in Psalm 13. He's like, how long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then Psalm 139, he's like, wherever I go, you're there. And we're like, wait, what's, which one is it? You know, like, are, are we lacking? Are we, we can't find God anywhere? Or, and, and then we're like, you know, I sit down, I rise up, he's there. I lay my head down, he's there, he's everywhere. And, and I think that's how we feel at times, right? It's the real, raw emotion of going, sometimes we just, we're asking God, where are you? 
And sometimes we're going, oh man, I'm just experiencing. He's always with me. He's present. It's so good. And, and we just see this, this journey, and we see this emotional uh, journey even in our text. And in our text today, he starts with crying out, and he ends with rejoicing. I love that. They teach us to worship. Uh, as I said, they, they're very poetic. In Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. How many times we, we look up towards the, the mountains, and we're like, wow, it's amazing, Right? And we, we want to share it with all of our friends on Instagram, and we're all looking at the same mountains, you know? It's like, yeah, I saw it. It, it looks great. But we're just, there they are. They're pouring forth speech. That's what Psalm 19 says. It says they're declaring, they're speaking. It's pouring forth speech. And, and it says there is no speech. There are no words. The voice is not heard. But there's a voice that goes out throughout all the earth and words to the end of the world. And in them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom. See this poetic language, you know, as the sun rises. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. And, and, and we see all of this, this beautiful poetic language, and it teaches us how to worship. And lastly, I, I think one of the most important things, it points us to Jesus. The Psalms find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Even in our text today, we're going to see justice is coming. The enemy thinks he has defeated us. They th- the, the enemy thinks he's won. And then the plot changes. Jesus is victorious over Satan, sin and death. And then in the end, God's people rejoice. Jesus, who makes us righteous and allows us to stand as a friend of God, not as an enemy of God. And, and we see that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this because no one is righteous unless Jesus credits us with righteousness. And so when we get to the very end of the text and we say, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord, like none of us would be able to rejoice in the Lord because none of us are righteous apart from the work of Jesus. And so the reason we are going to get to a place of rejoicing is we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us and Jesus setting us free, giving us victory over Satan, sin, and death allows us the ability to step in and rejoice. And so they point us to Jesus. There's nothing that you've faced or will face that the Psalms don't give us language to, to help us pray, to help us feel, to help us worship, and to point us to Jesus. And so the Psalms are a gift to the church. A quote that we quote every year when I start this is, you can never reach or expound exhaustively every facet of every Psalm. This is the beauty and frustration of the Psalms. One never reaches the bottom of the well from which God's life-giving water flows. There's always new insights to be gained, new moments of understanding to be experienced every time you read the Psalms with an open heart and open mind. And with that said, let's go. Psalm 64, okay? You got it? You open, turn your Bible, Psalm 64. How many of you can go back to a time in your youth, all right? You're on the playground, okay? You're on the playground. It's recess. Things get a little heated on the playground at times, right? Words are shared, and someone pulls out a little saying that goes like this. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, all right? If you've said that ever in your life, Raise your hand, okay? Sticks and stones, break my bones, words will never hurt me, okay? Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us have said that, right? And 
The reason why we say that is we don't want people to know that they can actually hurt us. Because words really do hurt. Words are powerful. Words really do sting. And, and so we do that as a sense of self-protection, a way of lacking vulnerability to be like, hey, that really hurts. None of us on the playground want to reveal to the bully on the playground, hey, so um, those words that you're throwing at me right now, it really hurts, you know? The fact that you didn't pick me first to be on your, you know, kickball team at recess, and you told me, you know, the last time I kicked that, I, that my kick was, was terrible, you know, that really hurts, and, and I just want to share that with you. No, that doesn't happen. We, don't, we, don't, we lack that vulnerability in relationship a lot. And those words stick with us. They, they hurt. And so we throw out another insult, and we're like, I'm rubber, you're glue, your words bounce off of me, and they stick to you, right? And, and so we just deflected them. Whatever words you, you sent to me, I just deflected them, and they're actually back to you. So whatever you say to me, that's on you. And What this psalm teaches us is words actually hurt. And so if we want to move into a place of feeling this morning, we go, yeah, words words hurt. Words are painful. There's a sense in in which when, when we think about words, words can be used as weapons. And the text talks about these words as arrows, that they're arrows that pierce us, that, that hurt us, that harm us. Words stick with us. Words can be used to, to build people up. Words can be used to tear people down. Words are like a hammer. They can be destructive and like demoing a kitchen, but they can also be constructive and building something. They build up. And really this text talks about when words become weapons, it's painful. I, uh, I watched a documentary uh, about a year or two ago called The Work. And what this documentary talks about is it's basically a, a four-day group therapy session held in Folsom Prison. And it's uh, in that setting, a, a group of inmates are given the opportunity to kind of process uh, within a group setting uh, just memories of childhood, of life, and they just begin to recount story after story after story of words, primarily words that came from their father, words of harm, words that stuck with them. It's amazing that here grown men, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, and they're counting back in their memory of something their dad said to them when they were eight years old that they've never been able to shake. It's the the power of words. Words are weapons. They can be weapons. The Bible illustrates the power of words. We look back into the first chapter in the book of Genesis. We see that all of creation, it was spoken into existence through words. Jesus is identified, as we're looking at the gospel of John, Jesus is identified as the word. The first temptations of of Adam and Eve, when we we go back, it was to disbelieve God's word. Satan comes to them and says, Did God really say? He's questioning words. And so words are powerful. They carry such power and emotion. And if if we were to rephrase this morning the little nursery rhyme of sticks and stones, the, the reality is sticks and stones will break my bones and words really do hurt me. Words hurt. 
And that's why the psalmist begins by saying, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. What he's asking for, he's asking for protection and comfort from the words of his enemy. And I, I have to be quite honest, I, I, I totally know words hurt. And I know that there's been seasons in my life, I look back and I'm like, man, uh, that stings. I feel that. I feel the pain of those words. But I have a difficult time really relating with the text in, in the sense like it's not often that I feel like I'm verbally assaulted, okay? Like I, I don't look back and it, it's like an every week occurrence that I feel like v- verbal assault ha- has occurred. And what this should do is, one, this should help us empathize and sympathize with folks who this is happening to today and, and teach us, too, to guard our tongue and realize the power of our words. But I can also think of a myriad of reasons when we feel like we need protection. Like it may not be verbal abuse, but it's physical abuse, it's spiritual abuse, it's sexual abuse. We look at the sense and, and I'm, I'm like, you can really bring any form of abuse in light of this text and, and it still fits within the context of this passage. I just want to say, if you, if you turn on the news today, and, and we were to watch the news of the past month, there are a myriad of reasons that should send us running to God and cause us to go, hear me, hide me, protect me. Hear me, hide me, protect me, Lord. Hear me, hide me, protect me. There is grotesque violence in our world. Hear me, hide me, protect me. There is sexual abuse happening in the world. Hear me, hide me, protect me. We look at, at, at sex trafficking in the world. Hear me, hide me, protect me. Lord, our world needs you to hear us, hide us, and protect us. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor and uh, leader of our Acts 29 network that, that we're a part of, he says, we are a culture that steeps itself in sexual perversion and grotesque violence. When people walk away from the Lord, the, the first two things you see, and you see it in our culture, and you see it in the Bible. You go back, you start reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you follow that tread. Here's the thing, when people walk away from the Lord, two things happen. Extreme sexual perversion and grotesque violence. If you ask, why in the world is our world experiencing what we're experiencing? Because we've walked away from the Lord. There is abuse. It may not be verbal, it may, not, it may not be words, but it's sexual, it's physical, it's in our churches, it's a problem. And, and a lot of times we think about this and, and we go, what do we do? What do we do in light of it? And we think in many ways, our, our first step is to run political. And if, if you received, we sent out an article a few weeks ago about how do we respond to the shooting in Texas and, and how do we respond? And a lot of times it's like we just want to run to politics and we run to political reform and legislative reform and we're going to say, you know, this is why this happens. And I can tell you why it happens. We are evil. There is sin in our world. And our enemy is not with flesh and blood. We have a real enemy named Satan who's out to deceive us. 
and to pull us away from the Lord. And there have been people in our churches that have walked away from the Lord. There are people in our culture that are ignoring and rejecting the Lord. And and they have gone about a path. And what we are experiencing as a culture is grotesque violence and sexual perversion. And we look up and we go, why is it? Why is it? And it's not political in nature, it's spiritual in nature. And my question is, is where do you run to solve it. I, I see the things on Instagram. I see the things on social media. It's like, hey, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take up all the guns, and we're going to give everybody guns, and we're going we're gonna to basically reform this, and we're going to put this person in, 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 in office, and this is what's going to solve it, and, and, and we're going to bring these policies about. And I'm not saying that there, there doesn't need to be change. I think all of us know there needs to be change. All of us know that there needs to be reform. All of us know. We may disagree about what that is, but I can tell you if, if the first place we're running is Instagram, and we're posting things of like, hey, let me tell you what we need to do, and we're throwing it out, and we, it's just some quick quick, easy fix, we've missed it. We, as the church, are the only people who know the hope of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're the only people who have that voice into our world. And we are the only people who truly understand. If we've put our faith in Jesus, we realize there is no power at changing my heart. I am powerless, and I need God to do it all. And so we are moved to a place where we see ourselves as powerless before God. The events that are happening in our world, while it's not God's intention, they are gifts of God's grace because they move us and posture us to a place and they're getting us to a place where we go, we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers. What do we do? And if we don't run to the Lord and say, hear me, hide me, preserve me, protect me, We're missing it, church. We're missing it. We run to him. We run to him. I I look back at in our our last 2020 and I think about our our culture and I think about our journey. I in in many ways, COVID postured many of us as powerless. We're like, man, we we can't beat this thing. You know, we're wearing masks and gloves and hoodies and everything we can to protect us, and we're, we're doing it, and we'll take every vaccine they put out, and, 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 you know, we're bringing our groceries home. We're setting it up like a surgery table and washing everything, and, you know, I mean, it's like we're trying to do everything we can, and we really encouraged that during that season, I, I, I said Second Chronicles 7.14, there's a lot of context here I can't talk about, but if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And many of us, we encourage you to pray that, to pray and come before God. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, that we would see ourselves as powerless We have no ability to bring about change. We have no ability to transform hearts. We have no way of of bringing about the reform that's truly needed. But if we'll humble ourselves and we'll come before God and we'll pray, we'll seek his face, we'll turn from our sins, he will hear us from heaven, he'll forgive our sin, and he will heal our land. Evil is not a political issue. Evil is a spiritual issue. And we fight it with spiritual warfare. We pray, we run to God.
The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We come back to this verbal topic. Words hurt. Where do those words come from? You know, hurt people hurt people. No, they come out of the heart. There's a sense of going, well, we can't transform your heart. Like I try to tell my kids, you know, when when kids say mean things, I'm like, yeah, you just, you know, in some ways, maybe I I haven't helped them. Confession time right here, okay? It's like, I mean, you just got to get over it. You got to move on. Like, I'm rubber, you're glue, all right? Deflect it. And, and there's a sense of like, no, it actually, it hurts. And so how do, how do we change that? Well, we're, we can't change hearts. And so there, everyone who speaks these harmful words, it's coming out of the overflow of the heart. We can't change the heart, can't transform the heart. We can't change people. So where do we run to for peace? Because, yeah, we can't change it. All this different type of abuse, it happens in our world. Where do we run? John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here's the thing, we got two places to run. We can run to the world, you won't find peace there. And that's what Jesus says. You won't find peace there. You can run to me, and I will give to you what the world cannot give to you. Where do you run? Where do you run? He's the only one who can give us what the world doesn't have. So, we got to learn to pray like this. we got to learn to come to a place of belief of going, Prayer is all I got. That's all I got. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that we're powerless without God? I think about the early days of our church, and uh, I've shared this story a lot, and I would, I would love to say that, uh, that it's still our posture, but I think it's challenging. I remember early on in the life of Ecclesia, uh, we were in downtown at the time. We, we met at a small charter school, and our family actually lived four or five blocks away from where we met and where we gathered. And it would be a regular rhythm of mine early on in the life of our church that I would walk to the gathering. And in that time, as I would walk to the gathering, I would, I would pray. And I really, at that moment, I, I postured myself of going, I have absolutely nothing to give the church this morning. It's not to say that I didn't prepare or I didn't study or I didn't have tons of notes to come and be able to teach from. In many ways, I, it was just me truly understanding and recognizing that I cannot transform hearts, I cannot change hearts, I cannot bring about change, that the Holy Spirit has to move and work if anything's going to happen. And there was just a complete understanding and, and honestly a fear. I mean, I've done student ministry in Texas 10 years before moving here, but you know, this was a new journey of stepping in as a pastor and, and being able to lead a church and the weight of that and the significance of that. And it, it just, it really overwhelmed me. And, and I would love to say that I, I've stayed in that posture, but 
many of you know, the more reps you get at something, the more confident you get, and you kind of grow a little confident. Like you, you're kind of like, I got this. I mean, I've stood up year after year after year, 40 times a year, preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. Surely I got this. And I fail to see that I'm powerless. I'm just wondering if that's our posture in many of the things that we're experiencing and facing in this world that we're like, hey, I'm strong, I'm smart. I'm wise. I got answers. And I'm not saying that you you shouldn't invest those, but to remember where true change comes from. We're powerless. We're powerless. I hope the Lord brings us here. I think moments like these in the course of the last several months, weeks and months and years, honestly, we look back, I hope that it, it's God's grace and moving us to a place of really seeing our need for Him. It's in moments like these that actually revival, if you look back on the, the history and patterns of revivals in our, in our world, it's, it's in moments like these because people are moved to a place of seeking God like they've never sought Him before. They run to Him. They run to Him. So we see out of the gates, you know me, and I, I like acronyms and alliteration, so here's what you're going to see today. The prayer, the plots, the protection, the praise. The prayer, the plots, the protection, the praise. Here's the plots. And here's what I would say. The reason we need to run to God is because someone's out to get you. They're out to get you. They're out to destroy you. They're out to hurt you. And I couldn't help but think, and, and as I read this, of not thinking about like people in the room or people in culture, I couldn't help but think of like the spiritual realm, that we have an enemy, a real enemy that is out to destroy our life, to out to pull you away from the presence of God, to distract you from the presence of God, who's seeking to ambush you, who is using words to speak identity over you, and it's harmful. We have a real enemy. But here's what's interesting about this, these enemies. I want you to re- read and hear about their plots. And, and here's what I would say. Uh, one, there, there's three main characters in this, this passage. One, the, the person being oppressed the oppressor, the people who are plotting evil against them, and God. Now, I typically, and probably you as well, love to identify with the person who's being oppressed. We play the role of the victim in the story. We look at this and we go, hide me, Lord, protect me. We, we love to play that role, and we don't see ourselves in the role of going plotting evil against other people. Now, I know my heart. Come on, right? Like, we, we're not sitting there and like dreaming up, hopefully not, uh, of ways in which like we want to take someone down. But we've all been in a, in a place of retaliation of going, we want to bring harm to this person. And so I, I want us to, to read this text in light of the foolishness of these plots, because I think we can sometimes find ourselves in sin in the way that these guys are kind of going about 
their sin. Here's what it says. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. They're secret. From the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. They're shooting from ambush. And so they're hidden. They're out of sight. And they're shooting them at the blameless. Now, if you're in the room today and you go, hey, am I blameless? And, and I want you to see in this text that it's not blameless in the sense of sinless. It's blameless in whatever they're attacking him with, he's blameless in that regard. Whatever it is that they're bringing to offend him with and words and attacks that they're bringing him with, he is blameless in light of that. He says, shooting at him suddenly and without fear, They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares, things to trap them in. Who can see them? They search out injustice. They're like detectives. They're like, what evil can we bring about? They said, we've accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of man are deep. Here's what I would tell you. First of all, their concealment is foolish. It's foolish concealment. What do I mean by that? They believe they're secretive. And and what you're going to read here in a second is, is that God sees them. How many of us in our sinfulness, we believe this is concealed. No one's ever going to know about this. No one's ever going to find out. And there's a sense, it's foolish concealment. We believe no one's ever going to see this. And here's the thing. It's always going to come to light. They have foolish courage. Their foolish courage is they believe they should have no fear. It says, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They have no fear of God. They deny anyone who has accountability over them. We don't have to listen to anybody. We have no fear. We just do what we want. No accountability, no fear of God, just moving through life. Foolish crime. The, the New Living says, they keep a sharp lookout for opportunities of crime. They spend long hours with endless evil thoughts and plans. The message says, no one can catch us. No one can detect our perfect crime. It's foolish crime. And what it, it basically is saying is, they're devising plans. They're, they're thinking of evil ways. They're practicing evil to take you out. And like I said, all of us, we see ourselves in this story and all of us want to be on the side of God and I just think how often I can play the role of the enemy. And I think it's important that we, we heed the wisdom in this, this text. That we don't see ourselves this morning as that like, that could never be us. That could never be us, right? I, a few weeks ago, uh, some of our welcome team people we're sharing with me that uh, a lady stopped by after the Sunday gathering and came in and had some conversations with the, the front booth. And uh, as they were having conversation and, and asking more about who we are, uh, I walked out and they're like, yeah, that's our pastor. And that was the day I was wearing the shirt that said sinner. And, she, and you know, she's like, your pastor's a sinner? And they're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you knew him, Yeah. And, uh, and it kind of blew her away. And I think it's, it's easy for us. Like, we're blown away in, in the sense of, of recognizing ourselves. We're, we're sinners. We're all sinners. And when we see in this text, like, they're going to get what they deserve, we should be fearful that, that 
are we going to get what we deserve? Because I know me and you know you. None of us are blameless. None of us are sinless. But these guys, they're, they're plotting to take him out. In case you think that you can conceal your sin and you can stay hidden, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees it all. There is no concealment before God. All of us, we, we have this sense of foolish courage where we believe, I, I can be prideful. I have no fear. Well, Proverbs 1.7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 19.23, here's what I would tell you. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied, and he will not be visited by harm. So here's the thing. I, I read this text, and it's like, we have no fear. And it's like, well, then you better get ready. Harm's about to come your way. You're going to have to give an account. There is someone that, that, it, that is your, your life is accountable to. Get ready. For those of us who are just in endless crime and sinfulness. 1 John 3, 8 and 10, we covered this. When we walked through 1 John, it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hear that? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here's what we see. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and this is Jesus in this passage, because these evil plots that they're carrying out to harm God's man it's, it's a place of comfort. It's also a place of warning to us of going, we see we can't stay hidden in our sin. Our sin will find us out. We can't stay concealed. We, we can't have foolish courage to believe that, you know, like we have all the power in the world. We can't just continue on sinning. There will be consequences. And we see the protection of God the Father. He steps in in the midst of this situation. What does he do? But God shoots his arrow at them. He sees them. He knows where they're at. He knows what they're doing. He knows what they're engaging in. And they're wounded suddenly. They're brought to run with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. The way God does it, He doesn't have very, the way He's going to assault them is done in a very public way. You're going to hurt my, my man? You out to destroy him? God's saying, I'm going I'm to take him out. And while this passage is meant to be, again, a psalm of comfort, I believe, and one that would move us to a place of going, 
man, I'm thankful God's on my side. It should also cause us a sense of going, I do not want to be on that side of God. Who knows me, who sees me, who's aimed his arrows at me. It's a warning. They get what they deserve. He turns their everything, their tongues, back on them. What if we were to get what we deserve? We wouldn't want that. And that's where we see the presence of Jesus in this passage. The only reason you and I, we don't get what we deserve. The reason God has not positioned his arrows at us. The reason we can be called righteous. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. The reason we can be moved to a place of rejoicing is because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. When you fear, when you're being attacked, when you feel like your enemy is all around, we pray, we, hide, we run to God and we say, hide me, preserve me, hear me, protect me, and God responds. And here's the answer he gives in verse 9 and 10. Here's the answer to that prayer. Here's the answer of this psalmist who's saying, hear me, God, protect me, God, hear me. What he ultimately gets to the point is, is he says, glory in me. In the very last verse, in verse 10, it says, let all the upright in heart exult. That means to glory in him. Let, let all the upright in heart glory in God. And we're like, what about this text causes us or moves us to glory in God? Well, the very fact that he sees sin, that nothing is concealed before him, that he is, he is fully capable of taking out any plot that they may stack against him, that he is, is fully capable of coming in and holding them accountable for their sin. We see a God that is powerful. We see a God that, that is strong. We, we see a God who is a protector. We see a God who is able. And in all of that, that should cause us to move and posture ourselves to have greater fear of God than of people. It moves us to a place where we truly glory in God, where we truly, we talk about uh, Habakkuk 2.14. is kind of a, a theme verse that we've utilized within Ecclesia. Is that it says, for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth, would fill our city like the waters cover the sea. That, that our city would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The glory really means the, the weightiness, the significance, the bigness of God, that people would know how big he is. And when God is big, people are small. When God is big, you want to know the answer? Hear me, hide me, protect me. He goes, let me show you how big I am. Glory in me. Glory in me. Let me show you how significant I am. God is glorious so we don't have to fear others. 
It's not that it doesn't hurt. It's not that we don't need to move to an emotional sense of going like, God, they're aiming at me. I need you to hear me, hide me, protect me, preserve me, speak over me. And he's like, let me show you how big I am. Let me show you how much control. Let me show you how I'll hold sin accountable. Let me show you how I will call them on the line for their sin. I will protect you. Judgment is coming. And in light of that judgment, it says all men, all mankind will be moved to fear. All mankind fears. They see God in his right sense. They move from a posture of going, they're without fear, to now the whole world fears. And when we have an appropriate fear of God, when we see God for who he truly is, when we glory in him, when he holds such weight and significance in our life, it's then and only then that he answers us in that midst of that hear me cry, that we're crying out to him. He speaks to us. He says, I'm here. I'm big. I got this. And this is what moves us to a place of rejoicing. What keeps you from rejoicing in the midst of this? Do you see God? Do you see God at work in the midst of this? I think you, you would probably look at me and, and look at our world and the context of our world right now. And I would tell you, we, should, we can be living in a state of rejoicing in the midst of the brokenness of our world. Why? Because sin is going to be found out. That God is going to bring judgment. That God is going to act. That there is nothing hidden from his sight. That God is going to care and protect his children. And that one day all things will be made right. Recently, I, I heard Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, he was asked a question in a news article this past week. He said, do you worry about the state of our world? He said, when you hear about the trends in our world, do you get, do you get concerned about what the evangelical church will look like in 10 years if current trends continue? And he says, no, I don't worry about it. I don't worry about it because I look back at the way the church started. The deck was just stacked against them. There wasn't even a deck. It's Jesus and a group of teenagers. And, and he says, I'm going to start something new, and it won't end with my death. This is for the world, and it's forever, and it's until the end of the age. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be saddened by it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be broken by it. But vengeance is the Lord, and judgment is coming. One scholar said, the answer of verse 1, to be preserved from panic, is more than answered. The judgment is still future, but joy can break out already. We can rejoice. Judgment is coming. We can rejoice. Because we're counted amongst the righteous. So as we close this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Can you rejoice? Against all the attacks, against all the secret plots, against everything that's happening, 
Do you see it as evident of God's grace of moving us to a place of seeing ourselves as who we really are, powerless? And it's, does it move us to see God for who He truly is, that we would glory in Him, that we would see His significance and His strength and His power? Do we recognize that judgment is coming, that God is going to make all things new? I ask you this morning as a way of response, when we get to this passage at the very end, it says, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. The way you and I become righteous as we've already shared is because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus got what he didn't deserve. Jesus lived a perfect life, completely sinless, completely following the will of the Father, completely obedient. But He loved you and I so much that He would go to the cross and He would take what we deserve, He would take on Himself so that you might be considered amongst the righteous. So that today you know when judgment comes, you'll be rejoicing. And today in the midst of the pain and suffering that the world is experiencing. It's not meant to be heartless, but you're rejoicing. That we don't, in, in many ways, grieve the world grieves because we know how the story ends. We mourn with those who mourn. We, we experience, we're saddened. We're broken over the brokenness of our world. But we have the message of hope. So I'm going to invite us in the next few moments to come and remember of why we have that hope in Jesus, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember the blood of Jesus that was given for the forgiveness of sins. Around the room, tables in the back, tables at front, we have communion set up, bread that represents the broken body of Jesus, juice that represents the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' life was broken for you, given for you. And so if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've turned from your sin and you've turned and given your life to Jesus and you're following him, you trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. This table's for you. He's invited all who are followers of Jesus Christ to come and receive and to do this in remembrance of him. I'm going to pray for us. And then as we worship this morning and as, as a time of response, I'm just going to encourage you to come. The tables will be open, ready for you to receive and remember that if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, we would all be enemies and objects of God's wrath. But Jesus Christ gives us the ability to rejoice amidst terrible circumstances. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this word, for this truth. We thank you that you hear us, that you preserve us, that you protect us, that you hide us, and you bring praise upon our lips. I pray that we would come to this table rejoicing this morning with a smile upon our face that you see us as righteous. Positionally, we're righteous. Positionally, the way you see us because of the blood of Jesus, we're righteous. We know there's a lot of things in our life that need to be worked out. 
We know that practically we're still pursuing holiness. We're still being sanctified. We're still being changed. We're still on that journey. But Lord, when you see us, you no longer see us in our sins. You see the perfect blood of your son, Jesus. So we come to this table this morning rejoicing and celebrating in the work that you have done. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We stand with me. Uh, We're going to sing together.